Hi, welcome to the Energy Intelligence podcast series. Uh, I'm Abhi Rajendran from the Research and Advisory Group, um, and I have here with me uh, my colleague Noah Brenner, who is our Houston Office Bureau Chief. Um, so we just spent uh, last week in London at our annual Oil and Money Conference, um, and came away with you know with a lot of interesting takeaways, uh, both in terms of the the global energy industry. Um, and, and, and also some more specific narrow uh, takeaways um, on, on the U.S. market. So we wanted to uh, chat about, you know, some of these some of these areas, uh, you know, that were particularly of interest to us and, um, you know, and, and some of these areas that we think are going to be key to follow um, over the next couple of months and, and into next year. Um, so, Noah, maybe a question for you. Uh, just in terms of overall uh, takeaways from the conference, what did we learn in terms of the industry's uh, readiness in facing uh, growing questions around um, the energy transition, a focus on climate and emissions? Um, you know, what, what were some of our, our big picture um, uh, points? You know, I think from a high level, the industry, it was really obvious that the industry is taking uh, this question much more seriously than it has in the past and really trying to be more proactive in its approach uh, to the energy transition and to explaining where it fits, both as an industry and at the corporate level, where individual companies uh, are able to kind of play in this this new energy space. Um, You know, hopefully this will... Uh, help them regain some credibility, maybe, that they have have lost uh, in the past by being a bit behind this debate. Um, but I think really what it means for the U.S. independence is probably less dramatic than what it means for, for say, a European supermajor like a Shell or a Total. It really comes down to, um, to discipline, to capital discipline and a focus on free cash flow and showing uh, over and over that these companies can manage under lower oil prices, which is what we would expect uh, through the transition, and, and really be profitable, be real companies. Now, there's certainly some, some look at per barrel carbon reduction metrics and things like that, but I think from an investor standpoint and from really bringing um, investors back into this space, it's, it's discipline and cash flow and doing it over and over. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's right. I mean, you know, when when you're talking about the super majors and and perhaps some of the the big national oil companies and others, uh, you know, what we heard a lot of was you know you know them venturing more into power and renewables and um, you know and then certainly pushing a bigger perhaps a bigger gas and LNG agenda um, at least for this trans- transitory period. Um, but for you know, like you said, for U.S. companies, it's a challenge, right? I mean the the vast majority of U.S. companies, the the model is predicated uh, on oil production first and foremost. Um, you know, and 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 that is really the kind of the the hydrocarbon that is kind of being demonized the the most. Um, you know, in this whole debate and in this whole conversation of of the transition. So, um, you know, I think you know what we heard, and, and we hosted a couple of panels with you know a couple of large um, you know independents and producers, and you know there are certainly key companies. Um, like Oxy, like ConocoPhillips, you know, who are pushing ahead, um, you know, with, with whatever they can do in terms of a low carbon agenda, um, direct air ca- capture and other technologies, um, and, and certainly being a little bit more uh, forceful in their ESG messaging. But again, mm-hmm. you know, this is a, you know, this is really a, 
uh, you know, a, a conversation that can be had for a handful of companies. And once you start kind of going, you know, past the list of, you know, large independents, um, that, you know, this, this conversation of transition and ESG pretty much sort of peters out. Um, well, and I think one area that, as you've pointed out, there's been more and more interest in U.S. gas. And one area where this could come into play uh, in an interesting way is around this uh, growing need to decarbonize gas to ensure that it does have a strategy. And I think with uh, second wave U.S. LNG supply um, potentially coming on, you know, towards the middle of, of this decade, uh, there, there, you know, we could see maybe a real need on the part of some of the U.S. gas producers to show that that, that gas feedstock that will be feeding those projects is lower carbon, um, or that they can at least mitigate the carbon impact of that in some way, which which I thought was interesting. It wasn't something that I had been paying as much attention to. Yeah, absolutely, and and, and that is even a story for the the super majors, right? The the big you know U.S. centric ones where, you know, you have uh, Chevron and Exxon. You know, adding an incremental, you know, one and a half to two BCF a day of, of gas production out of the Permian uh, for each one of those uh, over the next sort of five years, um, in you know, in, in, in total, and and to make sure that you know that 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 they are taking the right boxes and 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 that that gas, like you said, is a you know is a um, you know environmentally friendly um, you know uh, production is um, is going to be critical. I um, mean, this actually leads me to to kind of the the, the next point. Um, you know, which is this, you know, growing debate, you know, on the ground of um, of how uh, politics and grassroots movements, um, you know, against the oil and gas industry in the U.S., um, you know, are kind of overlaying this whole conversation, uh, not just from from what companies are supposed to do. Right. And so we obviously have this, um, you know, this 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 growing conversation on the pushback on fracking, um, you know, on, on how close it can be to, to certain population centers and whether it's houses or schools and things like that. Um, so maybe just a question for you, you know, how should we kind of think about this? Uh, what, do we, what do we hear um, and, and what are some of the things that we should be focused on looking ahead? Well, I've, I've got to confess I didn't watch the Democratic debates last night because I was watching the Washington Nationals clinch a World Series uh, berth. But, um, you know, this is a drumbeat that we've heard uh, begin early on in the Democratic campaigns as, as candidates have really tried to, to court that left or left uh, kind of left of center portion of, of the Democratic base and, and, and show that they're being tough on fossil fuels. Now, we've begun to write quite a bit about the potential impacts of a fracking ban. Um, among other things, we've looked a lot at really how likely it is. Um, certainly, we're going to see some dire numbers in terms of the potential impact on the U.S. and really global supply if a Democratic candidate were to ban fracking uh, across the entire nation, uh, both public and private lands. Now, we don't really see how a, a private lands type of frack ban um, holds up especially well in court. Uh, and I think that's kind of the key way, uh, sort of a, a key thing to keep in mind when we're talking about really extreme policies like banning fracking in the U.S. And that's that there is going to be some pushback in the courts from, I mean, the oil industry itself, as well as all the millions of people that, that get royalties from their oil and gas activity on their lands and on their minerals. And so while I think the threat of, of this is real, I think we have to take the threat of this as real. Um, these candidates could very well do exactly what they're telling us that they will. Um, the actual uh, implementation of something like that would likely be much slower and probably more limited than, uh, than an initial analysis might indicate. 
Yeah, absolutely, and those are those are all great points. And just a couple of you know, add a couple of uh, nuggets to uh, to this question. Um, you know, this is an area that we've been you know focused on quite a bit, and and we'll obviously be increasingly paying a lot of attention to. Um, and, and in our view, you know, in terms of the you know the you know like you said, in terms of the actual areas affected, um, you know, you kind of have to at least for now separate out the the federal from the private. Um, uh, lands and uh, you know we are primarily focused on um, you know New Mexico uh, so the Delaware Basin part of uh, that state um, you know Colorado where you know it's been our view that you know there are there there are already you know significant um, you know state level pushbacks to to fracking and production and and we see that state you know pretty much going X growth regardless of what happens in the election next year um, you know within the next one or two years um, and then certainly other areas to keep a close eye on are the Gulf of Mexico of course. Um, you know, and then maybe even, you know, kind of venturing into due to Wyoming, the Powder River Basin um, and a couple of other areas. So um, it's certainly an area that we're doing a lot of work on. Um, you know, one of the other points just just to 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 highlight to, to kind of wrap up this part of the the, the conversation is that, you know, it, it is also our view that, you know, while this rhetoric is out there now, um, that there is going to have to be. Uh, you know, a little bit of a toning down of this, um, you know, going into, uh, um, you know, an election next year that, you know, that that cooler heads are going to have to prevail to some degree in in terms of having a, a you know, a better thought out uh, transition to if you were going to ban or phase out fracking or, 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 you know, other forms of production, that it's, it's going to have to be thought out our, you know, over a prolonged period of time and not just, uh, you know, hammered out, uh, you know, over overnight or over a short period of time where there are certainly going to be broader ramifications to not just producers, um, but, but consumers as well, um, you know, on, on both the oil and, and, and then the gas side of the coin. Um, and you know, and then just to kind of wrap up the debate, um, you know, I know, I know we, you know, we're getting close to time, but you, you know, this is this whole conversation, you know, wraps pretty nicely with with our uh, with our view that uh, that we, you know, in terms of ongoing growth for oil and gas production, we already have a, a lower than consensus view out there um, over the next couple of years coming out of the U.S. and you know, bringing in this conversation around energy transition climate, emissions, um, and certainly this just growing um, you know, risk factor in terms of politics, you know, all sort of help to reinforce our view that um, that that the supply base here is, um, you know, is slowing and going to be slowing uh, faster than many expect. Uh, there are obviously a broad set of implications around this for the upstream, uh, for the downstream, um, and then for the global market, both oil and gas, of course. Um, so these are all areas that we will be, you know, covering, um, you know, for on our uh, information services side and our research side uh, going forward as they develop. So Noah, thanks for joining me. I think that's about uh, all the time we have. And we look forward to uh, continuing this conversation uh, with, with all of you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to the Energy Intelligence Podcast. Please check back with us soon for our latest content, which you can find at energyintel.com. Energy.